Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. We're still trying to make sense of the impressionist and modern art sales in New York. The $1.5 billion total tells us that something extraordinary took place. If you want some detailed information on AMM Pro, we have a breakdown by artist, by market share, by value, and by which works were most bid upon. If you don't want to get that wonkish about it, we also spoke to David Norman to get the benefit of his 30 years experience in the Impressionist market. David Norman, we are sitting after two solid weeks of $2.7, $2.8 billion in art sales. For the first time in a long time, the the bulk of that was in the Impressionist and Modern category, not in the supposedly only market that matters, contemporary art. So sort of your show is back in town. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you've got uh, sort of some sort of big thoughts on uh, what it felt like, you know, waking up after all of this, your ideas about how the last two weeks w- went, and then we can talk later about, you know, w- what it means for the future. Yeah, of course, Marion, and it's great to be here with you again doing our thing. Uh, I guess my first thoughts were that pretty much nearly $3 billion worth of art sold and purchased is a hell of a lot of money. And, you know, the the market really showed a great capacity to absorb all that material. I I know that there were a lot of concerns even before the season came that Rockefeller would really take all the money out of the market. There'd be very little left over. There were concerns, should we sell during the Rockefeller season? Maybe we should get ahead of it. Maybe we should go the season after and ride its coattails. But it didn't take away from the bidding on all the great property, the property that was great. (laughs) Let me reverse that. Uh, that came afterwards. Christie's took a really courageous gamble a couple years ago to make their commitment to a date uncertain guarantee several years out. And it not only paid off in terms of how well the sale did, uh, but, you know, maybe for some counterintuitively, it paid off in their ability to draw other collections for their sales. You know, I've made every argument in the auction world. You should sell with us because we've got the great collection and everyone's coming here. You can't sell over there because they'll have no time to pay attention to your uh, material. So so what do you think that that is? I mean, they effectively split it into two different auction, you know, teams. They had they had a Rockefeller team traveling around the world, setting up exhibitions, marketing, focusing on all all of this. And then they kept their main team working on gathering material. And then in some, uh, I guess, brilliant uh, scheme of incentives or management, they were able to get all of those various teams to work together across both the sales. So you saw during Rockefeller Week, I made a joke with a, a senior person in the contemporary department that they were just waiting for this stuff to get off the wall so they could get to work. He said, no, no, I, you know, I got to get sell this stuff too. So there was that real sense that they, you know, it was all hands on deck and yet they were able to keep the focus on either one rather than sort of merging them together. No, it was superb teamwork and 
you know, some might have said we were uh, marketed Rockefeller for a year, but they did give collectors an awful lot of time, months ahead of the sale, private viewing set up in the New York office. Uh, so there was a lot of time for the prospective bidders to absorb Rockefeller. I don't feel from walking in the galleries at the time that collectors came in feeling tremendous pressure to quickly decide, you know, between pieces and Rockefeller and pieces in the regular evening sale. Uh, they already had a familiarity with Rockefeller and were coming back for second and third looks. Uh, there was a great opportunity to focus on Rockefeller through a whole week exhibition before you got to go to the other side of the building and get some sneak previews of the evening sale. And it generally felt like a less harried experience to get it all in. So how much from your conversations with various buyers, potential buyers and so forth, how much of the interest was in the works as works? as examples of whatever they were, or in the Rockefeller provenance? It, it's the works. You know, provenance, Rockefeller, Jackie O, Warhol, you know, it raises the prices of cookie jars and picnic baskets and cufflings, but you get to a certain number of millions of dollars, and, you know, someone's not going to spend $5 million more to say, you know, they have the Rockefeller Monet, in fact, a client, was going to bid in the American sale on an Avery. And she asked me, uh, boy, it's worth me bidding higher because it's a Rockefeller Avery. And I said, yeah, but tomorrow it's a Schwartz Avery <laughs> or a Smith Avery. <laughs> you know, will be. Uh, no, no, that's exactly the, pro the, the provenance doesn't travel that long. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I thought it was very interesting that that whole American sale did probably better than the main sale, just in terms of expectations and raw numbers, uh, and the Averys in particular, and, and often not the bigger, showier paintings. So there were some bigger Averys, but the ones that seemed to do particularly well showed that people were walking around making, I don't want to say connoisseur choices, but at least personal preference choices. There were people were buying works of art that they cared about rather than just being able to get something from the Rockefeller sale. No, it was it was discriminating. And, uh, you know, when the auction houses market, they feel they're, you know, going to impress the clients with the collection name, you know, live like a Rockefeller. You know, I, I smile a little, if not smirk, about that. Um, but new buyers or well-established buyers really, for a large part, do seem to find their way to the top works. And they have a certain assessment, maybe in the middle rung. They don't go way overboard. So let's talk about top works for a second, because, I mean, the top work of the week wasn't a Rockefeller work. It was a beautiful and, and strikingly reproduced on the cover of the recent uh, Modigliani uh, uh, show at the Tate. It was a very expensive, very successful sale that confirmed the $170 million price from uh, two years ago. Like all of these sales, which totaled so high and reached such successful prices, just under the skin, and I know we've talked about this, there are a lot of nuances. There are a lot of ways to interpret this, and I think there's a lot of potential precarious moments the auction houses will face going forward in terms of estimating. Now, 
they did Sotheby's a terrific job getting the owner of that Modigliani a fantastic price. I, I genuinely think if it was uh, a non-guaranteed situation, maybe instead of saying in the range of 150, they were quoting around 100 and they got bidders, I don't think in this instance they would have gotten that high. So like everyone said very often, they made a private sale in advance of, of the auction and then it was sort of enacted before us. And because it was already so fully priced, nothing was happening in the sales room. It was like going to an opening night of a play everyone's raving about and it's a little, you know, dull on stage, a little leaden. Even so, it is remarkable to me the wide range of opinion on this subject, that there are many people who are, who are all could be described as quite knowledgeable, who some who would say that was a $200 million painting and because of the way it was structured, it you know uh, turned off uh, uh, bidders and all. Others like you say that's a fantastic price for uh, that or any painting, but you know uh, especially that. I mean, there still are, uh, there are not a ton of those available uh, in private hands, but they're, they're not, uh, it's not hen's teeth. There's, you know, there's there's more than one or two uh, of them, and of what one, you know, uh, thinks about with those uh, pictures, that that paint particular painting has both pluses and and minuses to it. So I guess I guess I'm more impressed that in this group of very smart people who all are dealing with something like this, that there can be such a range of opinion uh, over it. And and we often see that. I think sometimes. There's uh, a difference and an understandable one between uh, people who are assessing the value of something based on its rarity and that it should be worth that much. And then there is what somebody potentially spending that much money uh, thinks of it will go to. Now, it, it was a incredibly significant artwork. It was featured so prominently at the Tate. I'm really not, I sound like I'm knocking it. What I'm just saying was, I think they got the best price uh, from what might be the one person who would have paid it. Well, and also, uh, uh, you know, the way these kinds of sales work, the high price isn't usually followed by a higher price. The high price is usually followed by a slightly lower confirming price, usually because the underbidder has now been taken out, owns the, the other work, and the, there's less competition uh, uh, for it. So in, in the broadest sense, the market wins because someone has plunked down very publicly $157 million for a, a Modigliani nude, uh, which uh, uh, certainly establishes that number uh, in a way that the 170 alone uh, uh, could. I agree, but I also always find the up in these situations, not trying to be a contrarian, but again, spending all those years in the auction houses and always pricing works for the next sale. Uh, so Christie's had that uh, beautiful Mattioli nude, which I myself thought was more beautiful, and it made 170 and there were, you know, a number of bidders. Uh, then this nude comes up and it makes the 150 on just one bid. So that was a very specific deal that was made, and there actually wasn't any underlying support through underbidder corroboration. So what happens the next one that comes up? The owner's going to expect that kind of price, either for a nude or a major clothed piece. And 
it's on the auction houses to come up once again with a guarantor willing to go to that price. So it's a pretty delicate balance, and it's a sort of true and false indicator about where the market is for such a piece. Well, well also, at the 170 went to a non-selling buyer. The 157 may have gone to a potentially selling buyer, which now sort of leaves that hanging uh, out there as both competition and uh, undercutting the potential to find the, the next person to, to do that with. I, I think we need to do a study, or you as the, the master of, uh, of charting and breaking down the results, the relative performance on works just guaranteed by the houses versus those that are backed by third parties. Uh, with third-party bids, sometimes it really would just go one bid over or so. It wasn't necessarily always a good uh, business. You know, the speculation didn't always uh, pay off. And here we see with the Top lots in each sale, the Medigliani and the Picasso girl with the basket, uh, the people who backed it, I, I certainly hope, I imagine they're very happy with these artworks, but as a speculative venture, it wasn't a particularly good one for the moment. Well, you you have to presume that you're a long-term uh, uh, speculator and that, that other macroeconomic effects will come into play, uh, or I presume that's you know how, how part of this equation uh, uh, works. But, but to your issue about uh, guarantees, it, it, that's a nice transition to, we saw at um, Christie's two works that were sort of a case study, the, the Brancusi that took a last-minute uh, third-party guarantee that seemed to score Welch bidding, and the uh, Malevich, which which remained without a guarantee, that seemed to you know, I, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a bidding war, but but certainly got bids for it and and got a, a a bit of a healthier price on two works that were estimated at pretty much the same level. I think one um, factor that accounts for that is expectations. The uh, Brancusi from the Stafford estate is a work every one of us in the market, the 20th century market, always had our eye on. You know, we knew the day would come, this piece would sell, and therefore the speculation about what it might make, could it make a hundred million? In the end of the day, probably started to dissuade people, or they'd become more cautious and hold back and According to my notes, uh, Maria Lowe bid to about $56 million, and then it was, uh, I think, Loic and Tobias up to $63 million. There was certainly competition, but there were expectations it would be more. I actually think that was a very nice, solid price for it. Now, conversely, the Malievich, which was well known to be owned by the Namad family, which was bought at a Sotheby's auction when I was there as they were the guarantor and the sole buyer. That was a very familiar work to everyone. Uh, there was some talk perhaps that it would be tough to sell and would they end up making a profit on it and very surprised that it wasn't guaranteed um, that it would go into a sale at that level when 
Rarely will an auction house not at least secure a third-party bidder to get the ball rolling. They went naked, as we say, the whole NAMAD family, and it really paid off. Doesn't that speak to a level of greater confidence and expectation? One presumes that by not taking any form of guarantee, they had expectations that there would be a great deal of competition. On the simple basis of the fact that it was bought, in the midst of a financial crisis where there was a great deal of reluctance to buy any art and it happened to have this restitution story that made it a truly once in a generation you know kind of buy it, i would have thought those factors alone would have pushed it farther so one of the questions i have is i know it's out of your field but we've kind of seen a you know, the heroes of abstract expressionism haven't been so heroic this last uh, uh, season. And in some ways, we've, we've sort of traveled a, a full circle on, on abstraction. And I wonder if this didn't turn out, it might have been a great macroeconomic time to sell it, but it may not have been a, in terms of the market's taste for abstract works of a specific kind, it may not have been the moment to, to sell it. Well, yeah, and you're speaking about right now, this month. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a great price, and I, no one should scoff at seventy uh, uh, some odd million dollars in over eighty. Yeah, in any climate, um, but they did spend sixty, and if they got a a, a good portion of the um, uh, buyer's premium as as well, they're still making after holding it for 10 years, you know, uh, uh, 30% on their uh, investment. That's not terrible by any means, but, you know, not the kind of speculative return that one usually thinks. I I imagine it's not the best return they've got because, as we both said, they're extremely savvy about the market. One kind of feeling I had about this, it, it was always understood that there were collectors, there were buyers interested in this piece, but somehow a deal was never found or a dialogue never really got off the ground. One of the thoughts I had about why this wasn't guaranteed, besides the idea of let's, you know, roll the dice, let's be, let it be an open competition, let's capture as much of the buyer's premium as we can, I was wondering if this was just a way to bring the parties who are interested in the seller to find the right price for it, as if they didn't find a way to negotiate it privately and said, okay, let's just let it all happen, and and had an idea there were going to be at least one or two bidders who were almost certain to jump into it. Because again, uh, long-time market participants like them, it did strike everyone as a little curious that it wasn't backed and there wasn't a guarantee. Well, we saw that kind of behavior five years ago when the market had risen dramatically and nobody was really terribly sure of what the right price was. Dealers seeing the other deals they were making thought prices were going up. Buyers were skeptical that those were real prices and there was another uh, one uh, person out there willing to pay that price. And you saw a lot of work that had been offered privately or were coming from dealers being sold in auctions merely as a way to force everyone's hand. So uh, that actually is probably the best 
uh, explanation uh, I've heard is there just sometimes where you've got to say, say if you don't buy it, someone else will, right. and at least you get to see that there's someone uh, out there. Yeah, and I, I think in the Christie cell that wonderful 1921 Leger, Le Grand Déjeuner, um, related to the great MoMA piece, might have been just such a circumstance where the owner probably had uh, numerous people sort of flirt and make offers and then decided to use the auction process for it. So speaking of having great uh, private offers but not taking them uh, on Leger, we had the composition uh, uh, just last November. The contrast of forms. Right. Is that what's brought all of these um, uh, Leger works onto the market? There seems to be more on the market this go-round. There's good half a dozen, I think. They didn't all do like uniformly well, but they certainly seem to attract a fair amount of bid. You know, that could be, although... You know, I thought of the contrast of forms as, you know, a very rare piece, which it obviously was. But I don't often feel that these one outstanding performers have the sort of coattails to either raise the results of works to follow, although people might jump in on it. But I think with Leger and, and with so much of this sale, sometimes I just think there's a, a sort of uh, unexpected occurrence of uh, people deciding to consign. Let's turn that around and apply the, your coattails observation to the rest of the season. You know, there was so much in March focus on Picasso. There were some very good Picassos here, but some were withdrawn for reasons beyond uh, market interest. Mm -hmm. Even the ones that were out there, it was very uneven. There certainly wasn't, uh, you know, every Picasso was getting hoovered up kind of thing. We still saw strong interest in the 1932 Marie-Thérèse work. So that sort of trend continues. Uh, I think everyone agrees that both because of its price and a little bit because of its subject matter, the Gertrude Stein, uh, Rockefeller, uh, Picasso, again, that's a very big number, but, you know, uh, it may not have sort of, uh, it may have scared off interest and, uh, and all. But there were other works uh, uh, around that did uh, sort of variably uh, well. Do you have some sort of sense of the Picasso market right now? Well, we all were so struck and talk so often about the February sales when the uh, London-based art advisor Harry Smith went on just an absolute Picasso shopping spree from, you know, really marvelous, wonderful works to, you know, I don't think anyone would argue, some pedestrian works. And there was a lot of conversation. Is this going to continue? Is he going to stay in the market? Is he going to be there with his clients to affect subsequent sales? Personally, I and others felt because of how varied the purchases were, because it kind of felt like somebody just wanted a whole bunch of Picassos right now, that it was unlikely to continue. And, you know, I'll, I'll moderate my, my thought about Leger. I certainly think when you have a great price like that contrast to forms, it, it does make anyone owning a Leger consider it. However, it doesn't necessarily make their legers more valuable. But the Picassos, I do think more Picassos came into the sales with the hopes and expectations that maybe the levels have raised. And what ends up happening is a lot of people with kind of B-rate 
pictures, sorry to say it, uh, for anyone who owns them now or took them back. Uh, it, it doesn't have as, again, the, the rising tide didn't lift all boats. And then you also have the phenomena like at Sotheby's where there was a lot of pressure to get to a certain critical mass for the sales. And, you know, Picassos are typically fairly readily available. And they didn't necessarily just have the opportunity to to secure yeah. the ones the audiences really wanted. Well, but it also seemed like the Mandels had an owl that did very well. It wasn't like it was hot or cold. It was really on a case-by-case -case basis. The owl it sort of is a smaller example of there was tremendous success for pieces that were just aesthetically pleasing, that people really just fell in love with. That owl was so terrific, you know, at 800,000. And then, you know, to follow, there was in Mandel a head of a woman uh, with a chignon, and that was two and a half, three and a half, and it only had two bidders, and it just struggled to a hammer of one eight, while the owl went two and a half or three times the estimate. I saw a lot of examples in Rockefeller where there were pieces that people just fell in love with, the Gauguin wave, the large Monet, late Monet, and several other works which exceeded expectations, whereas very classic works, uh, like, for example, the Rockefeller Reclining Odalisque by Matisse, that actually made a little bit less than the large Monet Water Lily. And when I started, a full-blown, fully painted, rare Nice period Matisse would have made three times what a late, unfinished, stamped, rather dark Monet uh, water lilies would have made. And I think that's a very obvious reflection of the change of taste. I think it speaks a lot to an earlier comment you made with regard to the Malevich and the pre-abstract expressionist abstraction and the things that serve as sort of a, a basis for it. Certainly these late Monets it's it's well understood that a lot of the abstract expressionists in the New York schools really looked at them, the all-over quality. They also looked at uh, Miro, and I think it was in the Tisch that yep. uh, Miro did extremely well, but that a Matisse makes less than a Monet. The fact that the Gauguin wave, beautiful, but 1888 pre-Tahitian, and that made more than both a Monet train station, which is which is rare as hen's teeth, as is a Surah. So it really was so much more about wall power, uh, a more modernist, stronger aesthetic that, that drove the bidding and far less historic basis. It's worth pointing out that it's now been reported that the buyer of the Monet is not so, you know, there's been so much emphasis on uh, Chinese buyers, Asian buyers coming into the market, trophy buying and so forth. It's actually a very experienced, generally recognized as a buyer of, uh, of very high quality works, which would be more of an indication of a change of taste than necessarily, you know, an indication of it being sold on the, either the Rockefeller name or the Monet name. There was far less, particularly mainland Chinese or Asian bidding, really dominating the sales. And they often didn't necessarily dominate in number of lots, but they often dominated in the percentage uh, of, of, of value, yeah. value purchased in the sale. And it was so curious that they gave this, as we understand, American buyers 
telephone bid to Sin, the you know one of their top uh, agents for bidding with the Asian clients, and that's so fascinating. And to me, I could only conclude, I'm sure you too and many of us, that they wanted it to feel like there was more Asian bidding than there actually was, uh, which is so interesting. It's really the inverse I, of how these things often happen. I, I will uh, uh, indulge in, in some speculation, but first I will put the caveat on almost every time I think, you know, you can see something from outside, you ask the participants and they go, yeah, that would have been great if that's what we were thinking. Right. But no, it just happened by dumb luck. Right. Uh, so there's any reason that it could she could have been uh, handling uh, that bid to you know being in the same social circles with, with uh, uh, the client and uh, handling it for that that reason, or that they wanted. I, I would say. From the outside, they certainly, uh, Christie's has approached the Rockefeller sale as not just a big event that they needed to succeed at, but it was a, a, a big event that they could use to project into the future. Mm -hmm. They both talked about different ways that they were marketing it, the, the, the China first uh, approach to all of these things. So it wouldn't surprise me if the part of you know their feeling is you want to keep uh, giving uh, uh, a place where, where there's a lot of money accumulating and spent, being spent on art the impression that they, they are important to the market and remain so. I, I will add that I did speak to a couple of Chinese art advisors who mostly seemed to sort of shrug and suggest that their clients were a bit cautious about getting sort of sucked into something where everything was priced to the fullest and there was, you know, the sense of it might be great to have uh, something owned by the Rockefellers, but not worth paying, you know, extra for it. And, and I can concur from some conversations I had. A very highly placed auction house specialist, Chinese, said the Rockefeller name didn't really resonate. You know, maybe Christie's found in any number of cases it did, but a very experienced hand said... It really didn't, you know, have such a big impact uh, on it. So let, let's go back into the Rockefeller sale because it was kind of a fascinating uh, uh, event, uh, you know, for just uh, for taste and, and numbers reasons. The the um, you mentioned the uh, uh, Monet train station not doing ter terribly well, which I think a lot of people. Uh, felt the same way. I believe you You think there's some compositional reasons why, why it might not have been. And we now, of course, dis discover, as I, I suppose savvy people would have known, that the Basses yes. owned one, and it was it was bound to come up so sometime. So I guess if there was a reason to wait... Particularly when Christie's had the Bass sale and it was conspicuously absent, you know, which makes all the sense in the world. Like I said, there's some smart people who actually know what's going on behind the scenes. The rest of us just, you know, smack our foreheads. But even even within that, there were there were a couple of landscapes that did sort of not necessarily the way would one ex uh, would expect. There, there's that little sea uh, scape that did, uh, I think, particularly well. And then there was another very nice uh, 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 piece from the Seine and all that I think did, you know, reasonably, but not, you know, particularly well. Is it just, uh, again, that sort of uh, buyer taste as opposed to coattails? Yeah, I, I, I do think it's buyer's taste. They had some surprises throughout 
The one thing I found very interesting was their use of so many estimate on requests. And that allowed them, at first everyone you know, was getting the, the, the sheets of the pieces in advance of the catalog and sort of scratching some of our heads. Why is that estimate room request? Why is that little Monet of Camille on the beach, you know, which is just gorgeous, but was that difficult uh, to estimate? There, there are really quite a lot of uh, pieces that were like that. I don't know if the, the Corot or uh, perhaps not, but others were. And it seemed to allow them to adjust according to the interest they got, which is always the case, but it also allowed them to negotiate their deals for their third-party bids. And as they secured a certain amount of money, it changed the equations a bit for where they needed to you know, set the next one. So when the announcement started, you know, as fast as you try to write these things down, because the auctioneers say them so fast you can't write them down. Uh, you know, there was a third party on the, the Juan Gris, uh, the Little Manet, the large uh, Matisse Odalisque, the Monet Water Lily, uh, the, the Fauve Matisse Landscape, the Signac, uh, that wonderful Gauguin of the flowers against the yellow background. Uh, so once they got to a certain level on one, uh, they they had to, to play around with. Now, it's also very interesting the decisions they made, and some were good and some, you know, left a lot of money on the table. That Gauguin of the uh, flowers that they had estimated at $5 million, uh, went up to a hammer of 17 uh, There was also a lot of excess on the Monet water lily. So... Uh, they gave themselves a lot of flexibility to engineer it, but it also goes to show how hard it is to predict these things. Because at one point, the uh, advice to prospective bidders, for example, on the Signac, uh, which was estimate on request. And when I first heard about it, they were saying 1415, then it got up to 20, maybe a little over 20. But then, obviously, very close to the sale, they guaranteed. They got a guarantor, and it only went to $12 million. Uh, I think the same with the Garcin Lazare de Monet. It, at one point, I asked after it, and it was 30 and then all of a sudden it started to be, well, perhaps 40 And the interesting thing is it ended up making, you know, where their first indication was, and, and likely the Signac as well. I, I, w I presume, you know, so much of this is you don't have... Uh, a lot of information to go on. You get a lot of response, but you can't really count on those people to show up. And then uh, your, your, your best indication of real money to be spent is when someone starts offering uh, guarantees, because th that's, that's money you can count on. Exactly. Uh, and and I, I imagine, again, with the very large guarantee on it, the just size and complexity of the, the, the sale, not knowing how the American art would uh, uh, do, that uh, it was just a, a lot of factors to have to balance and, and work through. Yeah, I think the behind the scenes at Christie's was this must have been the most complex, you know, sale to manage, to set reserves, to 
decide where UC had latitude to sell things, where they might get excess in advance, to let things go a little bit lower. So again, I take my hat off because it was really well managed. And yet, just as you said, I mean, it doesn't need to be yet, plenty of things didn't fly. Plenty of things didn't make more than they would have in an average sale. And some things we've discussed Maybe plucked out. Maybe the Monet train station is the star lot in the in the season without some massive collection might have done more. Well, maybe that train station this fall after the bass, rather than right. vice versa. Let's remember that everything sold. Yeah, I can't see that they have any incentive to hold anything. But also, it didn't look like there were any pieces that sold at you couldn't believe it prices. That's not true. There was a tiny. Syrah, uh, almost postcard-sized work that sold for half of what David Rockefeller had paid for uh, 12 years ago. There was a Bernard that sold. But given the massive amount of art that we can only really point to two or three pictures that were sold for a loss uh, for what he paid for them uh, late, uh, it, you know, when he's in his 90s and late in the growth of the art market, is still a pretty astonishing testimony both to the collection and to Christie's ability to get it all sold. There were plenty of moments where they moved the bar up, and though things came down, they didn't come crashing down. They didn't push something so far that it just spoiled it and there was no buyer at all. Yeah, no, this this just needed an enormous amount of orchestration. And I think in what you were saying before, uh, accepting something like the little Syrah study, David Rockefeller's sort of prescience or the fact that somebody really just looking toward quality and responding to a work without some notion or intention of speculation and investment can make such you know amazing choices. One of the best examples was, again, the Gauguin flowers that was started before the Tahitian trip and then finished up after. We had that in the sale at Sotheby's. And Either we sold it at the low, but I think it went unsold at around $5 million. Uh, it was bought by a dealer. It's pretty well known after the fact. And David Rockefeller had missed the sale, so this dealer quickly flipped it for a very good profit. Not by any means outrageous, maybe less than he would have sold it for if he held it a couple more months. And so I think Rockefeller paid about $7 million. Um, Christie's had it estimated at five to seven, and the, and the hammer was seventeen, which is just, you know, uh, a huge price. Again, I wonder why they took a, a third party bid on that. And that that the 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 ten million in profit uh, there pays off a lot of little Syrahs that uh, exactly, might have yeah. lost seven hundred thousand dollars. We rather. we can forgive him his uh, his one little Syrah weakness. Uh, uh, another piece I just always loved when we had it was that gorgeous little Monet of Camille on the beach. And uh, I remember he bought that in one of our auctions. And again, this was multiples and multiples. And the fantastic thing about the, you know, what ended up being the investment and the, uh, you know, and the increase in value is it all went to charity. And yeah. you kept saying it. And you know, what a phenomenal family, both as art collectors and philanthropists. It was 
No, no. To remember that this is this is was his spending money. You know, the, as a beneficiary of the Rockefeller tr Trust, he was obviously had enormous resources, but but he he used those to buy things that appreciated in, in value. Many, you know, uh, a huge uh, uh, fold in you know number of times that the value has go, gone up, and and even just his taste. I mean, I, if you look at the market share numbers, normally Picasso dominates um, uh, all markets, but especially. Uh, this one and and Monet is an important factor, but because of the number of Monets uh, in the Rockefeller sale and around town, uh, and and it's probably worth talking about that sort of lovely view of the Seine. That mm. The matinee sur la Seine, the morning on the Seine by Monet. Now there had just been one in the previous Christie's sale, and I remember Nancy White bought it for a client. It was a Monet that seemed to be much more of interest and been on by Western buyers versus some Monet's in the Sotheby's sale that were a little sweeter, the rose trellis bridge over the pond that seemed to exclusively been chased after uh, um, Asian buyers. But this work did not do as well as the one the previous season, even though I actually think this was marginally better. The, uh, the quality of the color and the light in the piece was really beautiful. But it's a curious thing, the owner of this, um, chose to put it up so quickly because my recollection is that the morning on the Seine at Christie's, which was perhaps exclusively been on of interest to Western buyers, maybe it's the, the somberness of uh, this particular scene, uh, and I think that went for 20 or 21, uh, and this, what I consider a, a marginally superior work, made less, just made $18 million to one lone bidder. Um, and that just hit its low estimate. So is it a function of sometimes you just can't come the yeah. next season with a similar work, which typically is the way I'd, uh, I'd stand on something like this. While you're there, there's that Leger that had been in the YSL sale that did not do ter terribly well, well, which was a bit of a surprise. And maybe it's because it was kind of a crowded season for uh, Leger works. I always sort of go back to my view that it is all picture by picture. Going back to your comment about the Leger contrast to forms, did it draw more in? And I, I agree, you know, it it's certainly a big price, pricks people's ears up, but it doesn't affect necessarily the desire for all the next ones. And that was a 1918 work, mechanical elements. It's rather important. Um, but it was also, it didn't really jump off the wall at you. They did have it guaranteed, considering the estimate was six to eight million and the final bid was only five million. Looks like they probably just got out of it. They probably had to give up a bunch of their buyer's premium to, uh, to cover it. Um, one one other uh, artist, or actually two, I suppose. One, uh, both of us, you know, the the Rockefellers love flowers, and so we saw lots of Redon works, and many of them did quite uh, well, and a lot of Manet, in part because the Rockefellers had two nice Manets, uh, but I think there were one or other, two others around uh, uh, town, and so kind of actually, you know, again, we've been leaving the Impressionist and Modern category for dead for so many years mm -hmm. and talking about how it's, you know, you know, there's there's no supply, the, it's, there's no interest among young people and, and all, and yet 
you know, great depth throughout these sales. There's, there's always interest for beautiful. You know, it's, and I've said, you just never go wrong buying great quality. And that really is the case with regard to Red On, because Red On really has largely been a dead market, also like Fantam Latour, but Red On always has a, a greater color and luminosity to it. But no one was looking for Red Ons. No one calls up. Call me up if you want a Red On. I'm sure I could find one. Uh, but they were just so beautiful. And while I don't necessarily think, you know, they sold well because they were a Rockefeller Red Dawn, they were hanging there in the collection. And they really stood up. And people who normally you would only see Red Ons in day sessions because those that used to make two and three million now kind of just glance a million dollars or less. So not too many of the major collectors have actually seen Red Ons in evening sales the way they might have in the past. So um, I so think you attention think was called to very fine quality pieces. Now, I don't think the Red On market is all of a sudden going to change. I think it's but, the but it shows one you, occasion. But that's uh, that goes back to this uh, whole issue of how you present works and the great value of a, a huge estate like this with the, the name and all is that it would actually force people who might not go to a day sale and the way they they hung it as well. well you know, the, in the day sale, they had a beautiful Redon uh, harbor scene that did very well. It was oddly floral in the, the night sky or morning sky that it had uh, too. Uh, but, you know, it, it goes to getting people in front of pictures and getting them interested and seeing them in one presumes a bargain or whatever else to, you know, to actually. There, there was also, wondering how to put it, the triumph of the decorative because cause you mentioned Bonart. And here's another uh, example where, you know, in the old days when I started, uh, a very little known but very nice artist, Armand Sagan, uh, a folding screen Screens are difficult formats. Thank you for those of us who have no idea who Sagan is and why he would make $7 million. <laughs> it, it really is a little confounding. I mean, there, in all these movements, there's a whole uh, rung of artists who were contemporaries of the Pointillist and the Nabi. Uh, and, you know, the Pointillism, there's Dubois-Pilier and Angron. There's some like Sagan who are... Gauguin, Weird Bonard related Nabi, and clearly just two people fell in love with this piece because um, I had the art advisor and friend Thomas Seydu uh, bidding against Sin Lee, and they took off after 2.2 and they went all the way up to 6.6. And fabulous for that, but I really kind of feel sad for the performance of that large Bonard interior with the red wall. That was a really fantastic uh, piece. And again, I, I, it's just quite remarkable that uh, that should make less a classic large Bonard than a, a somewhat hard to install folding screen by an artist so few people knew. 
Well, and uh, uh, right next to that bonar was a smaller floral one that did uh, quite well and, you know, came in at sort of two-thirds of the price and is probably in, in size, you know, a, a fraction uh, of the, the bigger picture. So, you know, there were people willing to buy a striking Bernard, just not sort of uh, one that used to be of, of the taste. And yet there was a lot of competition, and that's another point we've talked about. Uh, again, with the estimate on request or the latitude they had once they were sort of accruing money, uh, a lot of times Adrian Meyer um, uh, in the Part 1 sale and UC in the Rockefeller sale really started the bids off low, particularly in the uh, part one sale at Christie's. And so they got a lot of people bidding and there was an awful lot of activity and you really felt bland. It was exciting in the room. Everyone felt so happy to see a really strong sale. And then when you mark your catalog or even more so look back on it, a lot of these just glance just made the low estimate or a bid um, under. And again, under the story of the success, I calculated that in the Christie's evening sale, about 40% of the lots either just hit their low estimate, went below it, or bought in. And at Sotheby's, it was about 56%. So it's just interesting, you know, under the story of the tremendous amount of money spent was actually a market that was measured and bidders that really couldn't be led. To well, higher prices. I, I think this is a broader issue with the whole art market, is that we have now had, uh, however you want to count it, five, six years of uninterrupted, strong prices. Even with the market totals coming down and some of the estimate ranges coming down in 2016. So if there's a correction in the you know market that you're looking for there, it was still from such a high level that I think it's very hard for people to put something up for sale without having high expectations and for buyers to want to, with specific exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis, but in the broadest sense of it, nobody feels like art is cheap. And, you know, what we saw in like 2006 or seven, where people were buying in the day sales, Renoir's hand over fist, you know, in bulk, uh, uh, as it were. I don't think that that's what's go going on. And I think that's probably one of the challenges for the art market is how to present things as an opportunity, how to generate uh, excitement. And I think that's part of what people <clears throat> uh are skeptical so much about the art market as well with the third-party guarantees and all of this sense that things are propped up. I don't think that they are, you know, a third-party guarantee is a real buyer. Uh, I think the bigger issue is whether it's a buyer who, who's eventually a seller or a buyer who's, a, you know, a, a not to, expected to be a, a seller. But there is that sort of feeling that uh, you're competing against the environment more than you are, um, you know, just seeing a great opportunity to buy art. And I completely agree. And then behind the scenes, uh, you know, the the part of the reason for the, the cycles and the ups and downs uh, is the ever sort of relative movement of estimates and results. So when... The art market is sort of lifting up. 
the auctioneers have been able to keep the estimates relatively conservatively because things hadn't been performing as well. It's more likely the sellers are motivated sellers and they'll tolerate and accept lower estimates and then the results are higher. So the next season, the auctioneers have to inch up a little bit the estimates and maybe the results are above but a little less above. And what your audience can't see is the way I'm holding my hands, <laughs> but eventually the level of the estimates catches up to the past results. And then once it starts exceeding those results, the audience starts to put the brakes on, you know, and since it's only every few months ahead of time, there's not a lot of time as opposed to in other markets where there's daily trading to calibrate quickly enough. You you will probably remember which year it is, but I seem to remember somewhere around 2012, give or take a, a year or two, probably, you know, earlier, there was an odd season that was just a buyer strike, right? The the uh, and I think it was in part because through nine, ten, and eleven, values had gone up. People were sort of surprised that people wanted to put money into art, and that well, and it was it, it was modern art because it was uh, 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 time tested that people felt safe with, and there was just a season where I can't remember who went first, but it was clear just the buyers were were not having it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> lower your reserves, and everyone, just to get things sold, had to, you know, take 20% uh, uh, lower than what the low uh, estimate was. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know where it stands now, but uh, 2009-10 were extremely profitable years. I think 2009 might have been one of, you know, in, in the recent decade or so, one of Sotheby's more profitable years because, because of the, the drop in 08, they were able to keep the estimates low, but the appetite was there and people were stimulated by low estimates. So the results were high, the margins were high, but, you know, the, the auctioneers can never keep the edge, you know, and the, and the audience and the market will correct it. That, so, you know, that's the great part about this, right? It never stays the sa same. The advantage moves in one direction or the, the other, and no one knows until, you know, the next go-round uh, uh, which way the And there's going. always the wild card of supply. You can never control the supply. And, Again, sometimes when we talk about things like maybe Picasso underperformed or Redon performed well, uh, it has a lot, I've, as much or more to do with the quality of the material than an overall indication of the artist market in its totality. Well, that's I guess that's a good place to end. Is that because we've had various markets over the last ten years, but but this can certainly, considering the climate around it, there's nothing you can point to uh, external to the art market, and the the run up to this has put a lot of faith and, and comfort in art. So this is the kind of moment where it really is going to be on a painting by painting, right. not even an artist by artist basis, a painting by painting uh, basis, what people think is worth. Uh, competing for. Right, and we end on complete agreement as we begin. <laughs> A rare occurrence. Right. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for listening to the Our Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 